This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents a Baha'i perspective on life through interviews. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Susan Monick, a Baha'i who holds a master's degree in Oriental Studies and a Ph.D. in History. She is currently an Associate Professor of History at Jackson State University in Mississippi. I started the interview by asking Susan where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. I guess I was born in the Silicon Valley back when it was known for prune orchards, (laughs) which is Santa Clara, California, in other words. We ate the prunes on the way to school back then, Mm -hmm. uh, or plums, I guess. They weren't quite wrinkled yet. (laughs) (laughs) But in any case, um, I moved quite a bit, but mostly just around Northern California, and uh, finally we my parents settled down more or less in Roseville, California, which is about four, 15 miles northeast of Sacramento, and that's where I went to middle school and high school. Mm-hmm. My father had a drinking problem at the time, mm-hmm. but I was raised pretty much, I guess you could say, liberal Christian, congregational, and later on Presbyterian. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a pretty avid reader of the Bible. I would say I probably read the New Testament perhaps four times, I think, before I became a Baha'i. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, the Old Testament, now, mind you, I came, became a Baha'i when I was 15. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Old Testament took a little little longer. Numbers is, uh, takes a while. You, you, you have to be very dedicated to plow through numbers, quite frankly. <laughs> so how old, were you, how old were you when you first read the Bible? Oh, well, I read the entire Bible when I was 18, the Old Testament. The Mm -hmm. New Testament I read probably the first time when I was maybe 11, Mm -hmm. which is kind of interesting because my parents were not that much Bible readers. You know, of course, Mm -hmm. we had Bibles around the house, but I don't have any... I don't have much in the way of memories of them reading from it. I think I can remember one instance around Christmas time where they may have read uh, the New Testament you know, the story mm. of Jesus' nativity uh, mm. from the Bible at one point. But yeah. mostly Bibles were something you did at church. But my brother and I uh, actually had much more interest in it mm-hmm. than my parents did. And what what do you think accounted for the interest in the Bible? Um, well, at the time, my brother was thinking about becoming a minister, and I was sort of imitating everything that my brother did. Mm-hmm. But uh, within a year, uh, he had sort of become an atheist. He was about two years older than I was, mind you. Uh-huh. And uh, I did not at that point. I remained interested in religion. Mm-hmm. But um, I think when I was about 12 years old, I was perhaps a little bit more interested in politics. I didn't think Christianity certainly was something that could change the world. Mm-hmm. And so I was very interested in the 1968 elections. 
Mm-hmm. Well, unfortunately, my hero was Robert Kennedy. Mm-hmm. And we know what happened to him. Right. <laughs> and I was actually pretty devastated sure. at the time. And you were 11 or so? I was 12 by then. Mm-hmm. I was 12 years old, and I remember I went into a deep depression that lasted, oh, several months. I think mm-hmm. what he was assassinated in June, and uh, but around August, my parents made the decision that they were going to send me to a Presbyterian summer camp for a week, which I objected to no end, because I had always been a nerd. I was the kind mm-hmm. of kid that had the sign that said, kick me on the back. Yeah, sure. And I was used to being picked on, and uh, summer camp seemed like a very threatening environment sure, <laughs> sure. to me. But as it turned out, um, the church camp was wonderful, oh. and I found the people very accepting. Mm-hmm. And I very much felt bad about going back, and I remember on the last day of the camp, I took off on my own and uh, went to a chapel that we had hiked to some time ago. Mm-hmm. And I walked up there, and it was all locked. And I was so disappointed that it was locked. I was determined I was going to get inside that place. Mm-hmm. And I walked along the molding. And I must have been about 15 feet up the gr- up <laughs> off the ground to get in through the window. Mm. I don't know what had possessed me, because I was not a climber at all, and I was yeah. not the sort of person who normally took risks. Right. Uh, but in fact, and I don't know why that molding told <laughs> 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 me, it was not even a proper ledge. Right. Uh, but somehow I got inside, and I got inside, and I, I, I said a prayer that somehow I would be able to return to that place. and, and uh, What place? Uh, well, it was actually this Presbyterian Pine Summer Camp. <laughs> okay, so the camp. You were praying that you'd yeah, come back to the camp. Yeah, this the camp, and I wanted to come back to that place okay. because of the way it felt. Well, as it turned out, I did. The following fall, uh, well, not the following fall, but the fall when I uh, began high school, mm-hmm. uh, I guess it was about a little over a year, there was a summer re- youth retreat mm-hmm. that our church was having, and so I went with the high school kids. Well... Mm-hmm. Mind you, I was a year younger, and like I said, never one terribly able to easily able to fit in. Mm-hmm. And so that was my prime concern at the time. Right. And even though um, you'd been to, to the camp before, I'd been to that camp, but of course, this was the kids from our own church, mm. which was a tad different. Okay. And I remember there was a bunch of us gathered in the cabin after the chaperones left, mm-hmm. and then the drugs came out. Oh my God. <laughs> And I looked around at the other kids, and I was trying to decide what to do, because suddenly the price of fitting in was getting a little high. Mm -hmm. And there was a Hispanic girl, the only non-white girl in the group. Mm -hmm. And she looked over at me, and her eyes looked towards the door. And so I slipped out with her. Oh, that's sweet. And we went off to a cabin by ourselves, and that's when she told me about the Baha'i faith. Really? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> she, was she a and Baha'i? She was a Baha'i, and she was guest of the minister. The, the, her brother, who was also a Baha'i, um, was the little brother, and the mm. minister actually was, their big, was the big brother then, mm-hmm. for Big Brother's organization. I see. And uh, so that's how those two had ended up at the camp. Wow. At first, I wasn't terribly interested. I mean, mm. I loved Loopy, 
and I certainly felt like here finally I was going to have a best friend, yeah. and and that is the way it was indeed through all my years of high school yeah. uh, from then on. But when she told me about the Baha'i faith, she said the Baha'i faith believes all religions are one, mm-hmm. and my immediate response to that was, well, that's good, I'll keep my own. <laughs> Uh, Lupi had a, a certain beauty to her. Actually, I would say she, in, in, in a lot of ways she articulated very well what she thought. Mm-hmm. I mean, her response when I said, I'll keep what I have, was, well, that's beautiful. She knew better than to argue. Oh, that's sweet. <laughs> uh, but, you know, they, uh, after we went back to Roseville, there was a day when the football game got rained out, so I called Lupi up and I'll say, let's go to one of those firesides you've always been talking about. <laughs> a fireside being what? Uh, being one of the sort of informal meetings that Baha'is had, but of course at the time I thought maybe it was some kind of seance. Uh-huh. You know, I had mm-hmm. this images of fire, well, not not so much a seance, but yeah. you know, that there was a big fire and everybody was sitting around owning or something. What moved you to uh, to ask her to go, or to, for you to ask her to go with you to a fire Pure curiosity. I see. Pure curiosity mm-hmm. at the time. Sure. And, uh, and of course, all it was was a very informal meeting in somebody's living room, but the living room was jam-packed, mm-hmm. and there was a lot of young people there, and back in those days, almost every Baha'i came equipped with a guitar, <laughs> so there was lots of singing. Mm-hmm. And I remember at that fireside, somebody told me the story of the Bob. And what story was that? You know, the Bob was the Baha'u'llah's forerunner. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, his ministry was very short, like Jesus's. It was, well, a little longer than Jesus. It was about six years. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, most of it was spent in prison. Mm-hmm. He would go from one, be sent from one prison to the other, end up getting transferred a lot, mostly because he would convert his guards and his warden, the warden and whatnot, so then they'd move him on to another prison. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually they uh, ordered his execution because the Bob was claiming to be the 12th Imam of Shiite Islam, the, the Mahdi. That's what they would call their promised one. And just like Christians, I mean, excuse me, just like Jews expected their Messiah to be kind of a five-star general who would, uh, who would rescue uh, the Jews from either captivity or domination by another country. So Muslims... Uh, saw their MACD as, as being someone who would conquer all of their enemies. Mm. And so that's what they were expecting of uh, their MACD. And here along comes the Bob, and he's a very meek man, and uh, not at all militaristic. Mm-hmm. And uh, instead he's teaching unity and um, things like this. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, so they ordered his execution. Okay, mm-hmm. and initially uh, they sent out a Christian regiment to do the job mm-hmm. uh, because you know the Bob was a descendant from the Prophet Muhammad, and nobody and, and those people were usually treated with a great deal of res- respect. So Muslims would not have wanted to execute him, mm. and so they sent out. Uh, these uh, this regiment of of men, but the Christians weren't terribly enthusiastic about executing the Bob too. He was a very, like I said, mild mannered man. 
Um, and finally, Sam Kahn came and he says, I, he was the head of the regiment. Mm-hmm. He says, I don't have any ill will towards you. And I don't really even want to carry this out. And the Bob said, well, just carry out your orders. And if your intentions are sincere, it's all going to work out. When they came to get the Bob, however, he was busy talking to his secretary mm-hmm. and giving him some last-minute instructions. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, I let me finish giving these instructions. And they weren't prepared to do that. And they uh, they took him off anyhow to be executed, mm-hmm. along with one of his followers, a 17-year-old boy named Anis. And they were all sort of strung up. Anis was rested upon the Bob's breast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Uh, the fire the the order was given to fire now of course they were using those old style muskets which raise up a lot of smoke and 750 muskets you can imagine the amount of smoke they 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 raised up mm-hmm. well when the smoke cleared the the bob was gone and this boy was standing there unharmed mm-hmm. and they went to uh, search for them and they found him back in the barracks completing his his uh, conversation with his secretary, and he said, okay, uh, I'm ready to go now. Hmm. Well, Sam Kahn was not about ready to have his regiment (laughs) fire a second time. He marched Mm -hmm. them off, and they had to bring out a Muslim regiment to complete the job. Mm -hmm. And uh, this time, uh, the Bob and Anis were strung up again in the same fashion. Uh, The bullets fired, and uh, with so much force that uh, the bodies of the, the two men really could not be separated from one another, and they rest together today at the Shrine of the Bob, which is located on Mount Carmel in uh, Haifa, Israel. What year was this? Oh, this would have been in 1850. Mm-hmm. 1850. Mm-hmm. Well, anyhow, I, read, I heard that story, and I was enthralled. Mm-hmm. And I said, give me a book on the Bob. Mm-hmm. And they tried to give me a book uh, entitled Thief in the Night, and I said, is this about the Bob? And they said, well, these are prophecies related to Baha'u'llah, who's the prophet founder of the Baha'i Faith. And I said, I can't even pronounce his name. Give me a book on the Bob. <laughs> <laughs> so they gave me Release the Sun by the same author, by the way. Okay. Uh, and I took that book home. I read it in two days, mm-hmm. and then I came back. The next week, and I said, okay, you can tell me about the other dude. (laughs) 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 And uh, uh, I think... What was going going on in your mind at the time after you read that second book, that book? Uh, Well, you know, uh, I remember when I came home from the fireside. Mm -hmm. The next morning, I was standing in front of the furnace getting warm, and my mother came by, Mm -hmm. and she said... Well, how did that meeting you went to go? And I said, you know, it's interesting, Mom. Those people think Christ has returned. Mm. And she said, bunch of nuts, huh? (laughs) And I said, I haven't decided. Mm. And she said, what? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But the thing that impressed me about Release the Sun is that when I compared it to the life of Christ, when and what I'd read about him in the Gospels, mm-hmm. it seemed to me I was telling it was telling the same story. Mm. You know, how could I say that this 
story of the Bob and his life and his station wasn't true, and then turn around and say the Gospels were true. To me, in my own mind, either they both had to be true or they both had to be false. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately, anything that you believe to be the Word of God, it's because when you hear it, you hear God speak to you somehow. Mm-hmm. And that story really touched my heart. Um, that book really touched my heart in the same way the Gospels had. And I really couldn't deny one without also denying the other. Mm. Mm. And so I started reading a book a week, I think, for the next year and a half before I finally became a Baha'i when I was 15. Mm-hmm. But uh, And what, uh, what was it that, uh, after a year and a half, moved you to actually declare yourself as a Baha'i? Uh, well, it was turning 15. <laughs> I see. Can you explain that? Yeah, in the Baha'i faith, um, for Baha'i, 15 is the age of maturity, okay? Mm-hmm. And so that's really the time in which uh, Baha'is expect people to make an independent um, decision on their own. So they wouldn't have accepted, at least at that time, they would not have accepted a declaration from me if I'd only been 13 or 14 years old. They would have said, you know, you need to think on this a while. <laughs> it's not time to sort of choose your own religion just yet. Right. Yeah. Um, that's really, you know, uh, Baha'i children are pretty much expected whether they're going to follow the religion of their parents or do something else at that point. That's really when we consider people responsible for their own de- decisions. And, of course, mm-hmm. one of the most important principles of the Baha'i faith is the independent investigation of truth. Mm-hmm. As uh, Baha'u'llah says, that we should see with our own eyes and not through the eyes of others, and know of our own knowledge and not through the knowledge of, of others. Mm. And uh, most of us try to cultivate that sense. Sure. That's why we don't have any priesthood in the Baha'i faith. Okay. So what happened after you became a Baha'i? Well, that was a bit traumatic. My father, like, I, I think I mentioned that my father had a drinking problem. Mm-hmm. And he, so he sort of took my interest in the faith as uh, kind of a, you know, he interpreted it as a rejection of him and a rejection of Jesus because he had set a good example. Of course, it wasn't anything like that at all. Mm-hmm. You know, I love Jesus. I never stopped loving Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I looked at the Bob, I saw Jesus. Mm-hmm. So what could I do? Right. <laughs> you know? yeah. And um, but that's not the way he took it. Mm-hmm. And I actually I delayed becoming a Baha'i a little bit past the time I was fifteen because, well, he went out drinking one Thanksgiving evening, night before Thanksgiving, and he wrapped the car around the tree, mm. and he got very serious brain damage from it. Oh, boy. And was hospitalized for quite some time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, when he finally came home, uh, it wasn't just, he had, actually, we didn't know about the brain damage just then. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, uh, my mother actually had asked me to let my father have a chance to recover before I, I made any decisions in that direction. And I had agreed to do that. But when she went away one weekend, um, my father started drinking again. Mm. And uh, I, you know, there were some problems that developed, and I ended up 
having to leave the house, and I took his keys with me so my father wouldn't be able to drive mm. uh, in in his drunken stage. Sure. And the only place I could really uh, take refuge, I guess, was, was with the Baha'is. And I did mm. that weekend, I declared, because I figured, well, after I did this, my parents aren't going to let me have any to do with the Baha'is anyhow. Mm. Um, as it turned out, and, and but actually my, my non-Baha'i brother, he had helped me sort of get away because I, I really needed to get out of that situation. Mm. Now, did your, bro- did your brother ever, just to diverge a little bit, did your brother actually ever leave being a, a change from being an atheist? Well, he said some prayers when he was dying. Sometimes, you know, Baha'u'llah says no man knows what happens at the hour of his death, so right. who knows yeah. whether, you know, but up to something that time, inside of his yeah. heart had changed or not, but he right. was pretty much of a lifelong uh, atheist, I guess you could say. Right, right. But in any case... Um, so back to your story. Yeah. Well, when I came home... Uh, my father sort of lost it, and he actually went after me, but my brother got between us, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, it, you know, he was acting irrational enough that my mother found it necessary to, to take him to the mental hospital. Mm-hmm. And while he was hospitalized, they found that he had epilepsy. Oh, boy. And when he came home, he was having seizures just about daily. Mm-hmm. And actually, I ended up staying home with him a great deal of the time because he really couldn't be left alone in that condition. And I, uh, and I was correct. My parents weren't letting me have any contact with the Baha'is. And in fact, I wasn't able to contact them for the next year and a half. And in the meantime, my father was having epilepsy. He was deeply depressed and constantly crying about why did I do this to him? Mm. And, uh, you know, so I was sort of having, uh, being overwhelmed. Of course, intellectually, I knew better. Mm-hmm. But still, you know, emotionally, those things always take their toll. Mm. Uh, on the other hand, perhaps sometimes when you pay that high a price for <laughs> something like that, it becomes even more important to you. Sure. And I know I would order Baha'i books and I'd have them mailed or I'd go to the library. I read everything under the sun that I could possibly read during that period of time. Mm. And, uh, you know, eventually uh, they did start allowing me go to to see the Baha'is, partly because I, they knew I'd be leaving home soon, and I don't think mm. they wanted me completely alienated. Did they notice uh, anything different about you? I don't know. You see, I was always the kid who never made much trouble anyhow, right, I guess. Sure. Mm-hmm. But they certainly must have known. I, I, I know that my mother acknowledges, you know, because since all of my brothers and sisters had alcohol and drug problems, mm. and I did not, uh, I think, and uh, also, you know, my sister got pregnant before mm-hmm. she finished high school and things like that. I think mm-hmm. there certainly was an acknowledgement that the Baha'i faith had uh, kept me away from those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, of course, I really had become a Baha'i so young that I wasn't yet into them. <laughs> sure. But, as you know, the, the, as, as the story I told you indicates, uh, you know, there was that choice that was made <laughs> way back when I was 13 years old in that room, and 
Presbyterian uh, Pine. Yes, you know? right. I, I guess in some ways that choice has always remained with me. Mm, mm-hmm. So then uh, you finally moved out? Uh, well, I went away to college mm-hmm. uh, when I was 17. Okay. And I went to UC Santa Cruz, uh, which uh, was sort of the most liberal university of the UC system at the time. I like to say that's where Berkeley liked to send its eccentrics. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, still, Santa Cruz is, is, is a place that's kind of trapped in 1968. Mm. So uh, for those of us who like 1968, it's a nice place to come to. And I still still very much love that place. And that's Mm. where I did my undergraduate work. I ended up getting my bachelor's in religious studies, primarily comparative religion. Mm -hmm. And then uh, you went on to graduate school? Uh, A little bit. I went back and I lived with my parents for a few years, uh, taught a little bit in the daycare centers and special ed in the Hayward Unified School District, and then I went, uh, my parents were living in Castro Valley by then, I should should add, in California, Mm -hmm. and then I went to graduate school in Arizona. Okay. And that's where I did my master's degree. I did uh, my graduate work. I did my master's degree in Oriental Studies. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, where I wrote my master's thesis on Zoroastrian conversions, the Baha'i faith in Iran, 1880 to 1920. I broke new ground. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Well, and uh, well, but but I wasn't intending to... Uh, but I got my Ph.D. in history, and mm-hmm. I wrote my dissertation on Zoroastrianism, as a matter of fact. Okay, okay. So what what aspect of Zoroastrians converting to the Baha'i faith did you... Was it just sort of quantifying statistically, or what, what Oh, was... no, no. I, uh, I was able to get a hold of people's stories. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I was most interested in looking at was the gradualness of conversion in the sense that, well, people might accept Baha'u'llah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for a long time, they continued to practice as Zoroastrians. Mm-hmm. You know, they would yeah. carry out the ceremonies, but very gradually they began to change some of these. You know, they began to... And in some cases, they changed the entire Zoroastrian community with them. Mm-hmm. For instance, in Yaz, the practice was, amongst the Zoroastrian community, was to leave their dead in what's called dachmes, or towers of silence, where they would be consumed by uh, birds, Mm. and uh, Baha'is, well, Baha'is bury their dead. Mm -hmm. Zoroastrians don't like to do that because they consider that polluting the earth. Mm -hmm. Um, So what, because they they regard anything that's dead as polluting. Mm -hmm. And so the Baha'is, Zoroastrian Baha'is first started encasing people in cement so that they could bury them, but they really ended up persuading the rest of the Zoroastrian community to follow suit. Mm. And to this day, the Zoroastrians in Iran, by and large, prefer to bury their dead. Interesting. um, To using those towers of silence. Mm. They also ended up establishing the school systems. Uh, Well, actually, the school systems were set up by the Parsis, but... Baha'is ended up being the bulk of the teachers. No, Parsis? 
Yeah, the Parsis are the Zoroastrians who were from India. Okay. And, of course, the Zoroastrians is a town in, in southern Iran. Mm-hmm. And India and Iran are really about the only two places in the world that still have Zoroastrians mm-hmm. uh, there. And uh, so, you know, actually what I was looking at, when I first started work on my master's thesis, it was going to be much broader. It was going to address the issue of how was it that non-Muslims started becoming Baha'is mm-hmm. in Iran. Mm-hmm. And I was interested in that issue because, you know, what is it that, it's part of the question of what is it that makes the Baha'i faith an independent religion? Mm-hmm. You know, because if all of their, the only people they're converting are Muslims, mm-hmm. it's effectively a sect of Islam. Right. But once you have Jews and you have Zoroastrians, and by the way, at that point there were very few Christians in Iran that were becoming Baha'is, but lots of Jews and lots of Zoroastrians, then, then it really, you know, can be seen as an independent religion. Mm-hmm. Because Zoroastrians and Jews were not going to become Muslims. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, and the reason being... Well, because they were so badly treated by Muslims, it was not going to be something that would attract them. In fact, one of the stories that I found, and I found this in both the Jewish and Zoroastrian accounts Mm -hmm. of how it is that people became Baha'i, is that Baha'is often of Muslim background might invite a Jew or a Zoroastrian to their home and serve them tea. Mm -hmm. And normally... In those days, if a Muslim served a Jew or a, a Muslim uh, or a Zoroastrian tea, after they drank it, they would break the cup because they considered them polluting, and they wouldn't want to use that cup again. Mm-hmm. Um, but what the Baha'is would do is they would serve them tea, and then after they drank it, they'd pour tea for themselves and drink out of the same cup without washing it. Mm. Now, I don't know how sanitary that was. Yeah, but it's had a spoken but a lot. it was a way of saying, sure. you are not polluting to me. Right. <laughs> sure. And I think it was a very, very powerful message. Mm-hmm. And the fact that I find it in both the Baha'i and non-Baha'i accounts mm. um, shows me that, that the fact that the, you know, the Baha'is were so intent on, as Baha'u'llah, put it, consorting with the followers of all religions with joy and spirituality, that uh, that impressed people that were living in a culture that did not seem all that tolerant mm-hmm. of them, because they used to have to, uh, you know, they couldn't touch food in the marketplace, they were subjected to all of these things because they were regarded as unclean. Right, right. And then you got your doctorate? Yes, I got my doctorate, and I was a gypsy professor for a number of years and too many localities to recount. Mm-hmm. I presently teach, I'm a presently associate professor at Jackson State University in Mississippi, mm-hmm. which is a long ways from California. Yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> <laughs> and what are you teaching there? Uh, well, I'm in the history and philosophy department, mm-hmm. by the way, religion tends to be taught there as well. Mm -hmm. And I'll teach Middle East history. I teach South Asian history. Mm -hmm. I teach uh, the world religions class, typically. Mm -hmm. Our bread and butter is, of course, world history. Mm -hmm. And to me, in some ways, that's the most important course, because, Mm -hmm. uh, well, 
the most important thing I think I want to do as a as a Baha'i professor mm-hmm. is to impress upon people the unity of humanity. Mm. And I can't think of a better way of doing that than teaching world history. Sure, sure. Now, I understand uh, you know Arabic? Um, well, <laughs> I have studied Arabic for two years. Okay. I say I, uh, I have studied both Arabic and Persian. My Persian mm-hmm. is somewhat better than my Arabic. Arabic is an exceedingly difficult language, mm. uh, but I do have at least some, and I have a little bit more... Persian, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and and Persian was primarily my language of research. What, while you were doing your doctorate or your uh, master's? For my dissertation, yeah, yeah. I needed to use Persian mm-hmm. language sources, even mm-hmm. though it was on the Zoroastrians of India. Mm-hmm. Uh, during the period I was studying, a lot of them were writing in Persian. Mm-hmm. What does the future hold for you, Susan? <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's that's always that's always a big question. Sure. I go for tenure next year, so maybe next year would be uh, a good time to ask me that question. Right, right. Uh, is that but, is that the uh, point you can request a sabbatical once you're tenured? You can, but sabbaticals are few and far between at Jackson State University. Mm. You know, this is a mm. historically black college without a lot of funds. Mm. Mm-hmm. And uh, they have some sabbatical money, but not much. And mm-hmm. it's very competitive to try to get the sabbaticals. Most mm-hmm. professors never, in fact, get them. Mm-hmm. So, what's your experience as a, a European American teaching in a predominantly African American environment? Well, first thing you have to understand is that if you come from California, the entire South is a foreign country, mm-hmm. <laughs> to which you'll never quite <laughs> be a native to, <laughs> mm-hmm. no matter how many years you live here. Mm-hmm. Um, at, at first, uh, I had some difficulties because some of my students were just so ill-prepared mm-hmm. for work on the college level, mm-hmm. uh, but... What I learned eventually was to break it up into smaller pieces. I designed a help design a workbook to go with our textbook that would help assist students get them there so that hopefully within you know uh and then stressing working on their writing skills and things mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. in order to express it um, uh, and eventually you know uh I began to feel f- quite comfortable i mm-hmm. I live in a predominantly African-American neighborhood as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess I've pretty much eased in here. Yeah, so you see the, effect, so you see the effects of the inequality of the education system between white suburbia and uh, the inner urban to centers. To a certain extent, although one thing you need to understand is that the entire education system in Mississippi is tends to be lacking somewhat. Mm. And the private schools that uh, were often set up for white kids to go to mm-hmm. so they wouldn't have to desegregate in fact do not get they don't the, the products of those schools do not get any higher test scores than my students mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so it does seem to be uh, kind of a across the board problem within this state mm-hmm. um, so it may be part of the regional inequities as well uh, it's real vital Mm-hmm. I think that I'm always thinking about the necessity to sort of reach my students because, well, especially when you talk about the African-American males 
if they don't get a college education, there's like a 50% chance they're going to end up in jail mm-hmm. or on drugs or something undesirable. <laughs> so right. uh, it becomes really vital mm-hmm. uh, to be able to reach them because mm-hmm. they're not going to find it very easy um, to get a future, mm-hmm. especially in this state without mm-hmm. a decent education. Mm-hmm. Are you doing any writing? Yes, you mean besides internet posts. <laughs> <laughs> Although I do find your internet posts quite interesting. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm in the process Actually, of maybe maybe before we go into that, maybe we should just describe a little bit uh, about the listserv you're talking about. It's a Yahoo group, you know, mm-hmm. it's Baha'i, B-A-H-I, what do you call it, underscore, mm-hmm. community. Yeah, as one of the Yahoo groups, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a fairly large group right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have about 650 members, I think, mm-hmm. and uh, we're having some very interesting dialogues between Christians and Baha'is, mm-hmm. um, which I think have been very cordial yes. for the most part, mm-hmm. and uh, certainly, I think we would certainly welcome more of that. Mm-hmm. Um Actually, I, I run a number of Baha'i lists, and Baha'i Community, which is sort of the latest one, <laughs> mm. that uh, I just happened to start. Uh, well, I didn't start it. Somebody else started it and then put it in my lap, so yeah. I've been carrying it forward since. I see. So, aside from listservs, what are you writing? <laughs> or post okay, on listservs? <laughs> well, I am planning to write something on Baha'i conceptions of, of religion and state, mm-hmm. and... Well, not so much Baha'i perspectives. I'm, I'm looking at um, what Baha'u'llah and Abdul Baha were saying about the relationship between religion and state from the standpoint of uh, Islamic ideals. Now, who's in Abdul other words, Baha? what were they saying within that context, which I think has been missed in some of the other scholarship? That's been done on that subject. Too many of them have tried to frame it in in, in the Western terms of church and state. Mm-hmm. Well, there isn't a church in the Baha'i faith, mm-hmm. uh, in the ter- in the sense of an ecclesiastical structure. As I said, we don't have a priesthood. Right. Um, now, who, one. Who's who's Abdul Baha? Now, Abdul Baha was the son of Baha'u'llah. I see. And Baha'is regard him really as the perfect exemplar of the Baha'i teachings, as the authorized interpreter of his writings. Mm -hmm. And he lived, well, he died in 1921, Mm -hmm. I guess. Uh, So uh, I guess he uh, headed the faith for roughly about 30 years. He Mm was instrumental in bringing the faith to the United States. He visited the United States himself when he was about, uh, in about 1912, mm-hmm. and traveled the length and the breadth of the country, uh, speaking to various organizations and, and whatnot mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I'm suggesting is, is that what Baha'u'llah did when he established Houses of Justice, we call those, most of those, local and national spiritual assemblies at the time, 
Let these, me put it these, this way. these are these local spiritual assemblies. These are local governing bodies for the Baha'is. Yes, these are local governing bodies. Uh, mm-hmm. You, but uh, briefly, you know, the Islamic conception is that you can't have democratic legislatures mm-hmm. because law is something that's divinely revealed, mm-hmm. um, and you can have elected leaders. Mm-hmm. Okay, the, the consensus of the community can pick their leader, but the leader's job is to enforce the Sharia, the Islamic law that's already been laid out, mm-hmm. and usually interpreted by the clergy. Mm-hmm. Um, what the behind what Baha'u'llah did was he set up legislatures, whether we call them houses of justice or spiritual assemblies. But I guess added a, a sacral dimension to them mm-hmm. that the very consul, the, the kind of consultative process by which Baha'is go about making decisions mm-hmm. um, is seen as as containing a sense of divine inspiration in it. I guess is probably the best the best way of putting it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that it's democratic on the one hand, but without losing that sacred quality that I guess. Uh, Islamic law had. Mm-hmm. Now, speaking of Islamic law and the fact that you said something about Islam doesn't, that something about Islam and democracy, can you repeat that again? Well, uh, what I was saying was is that at least prior to the 20th century, I should say the 20th century that's changed because countries like Iran do have legislatures. Okay. But originally the very concept of a legislature uh, on the Western, on, on the model of Western democracies, uh, was unthinkable mm. because law was seen as something that was divinely revealed, not something that was man-made, mm-hmm. and therefore you could have it made by legislatures. Yeah. And um, and therefore, you know, they did have a concept that you could democratically elect a leader. Mm-hmm. But not that you would have, not that you would make laws that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like I said, that has changed because you now have Islamic republics, Iran mm-hmm. being one, uh, Pakistan being another. Mm-hmm. Although Pakistan's somewhat of a dictatorship, I don't know how much legislative power there is with uh, Musharraf there. Well, it goes back and forth. Um, I use those two examples because those are the two states which explicitly call themselves Islamic republics. Okay. Now, what you know, you... For, Go ahead. Uh, you know, for instance, in Iran, you have a, a legislature, but right. mind you, you have the ulama have authority to veto any of the legislature that goes through right. if they think it's contrary to Islamic law. Mm-hmm. And you can't run for the Iranian legislature unless you've been approved by these ulama. So it's not an entirely open system, but I think it's probably fair to say that it is, it is a republic in some sense of the word. Actually, you know, my wife and I were having this conversation about what's the difference between the definition of republic and democracy? Ah, uh, okay. The <laughs> yes, that goes back to sort of... Uh, uh, middle school civics class. Yeah, but the basic the basic difference is is that a republic is governed chiefly by constitution, mm-hmm. and whereas a democracy 
is, uh, you know, what the majority says goes. Mm -hmm. Technically speaking, the United States is a republic. It is not a democracy. Mm -hmm. You know, for instance, we have safeguards in our Constitution which prevent the majority from tyrannizing minorities. Mm Mm-hmm. In theory, right. <laughs> and sometimes even in practice, right. and so there are limits to even what uh, the majority can vote for. Mm-hmm. And so, a republic would be basically any system. Uh, but I would assume that, uh, generally speaking, a republic is going to have some kind of a le- legislative, executive, and judicial arm to it, mm-hmm. just as we commonly find in the West. Mm-hmm. Such was not typical in the East, however, mm-hmm. um, and in the Islamic world. You had the mm-hmm. executive, and then you had the you had the ulama who decided, who acted both as judges mm-hmm. and determined what was the content of Islamic law. Mm-hmm. So they had a tremendous amount of power, mm-hmm. and a lot of what Baha'u'llah and Abdul Baha said, and the powers they gave to houses of justice, was an attempt to. To diminish the power of the the uh, Muslim clerics, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, or any clerics. Right. <laughs> In other words, I per- I guess it's perhaps more precisely to prevent that same kind of uh, power structure from being developed in the Baha'i faith. Yeah, actually, Baha'u'llah said something about how uh, the clerics, in a lot of cases, and it, not just in Islamic uh, relationship with the Baha'i faith, but in pretty much every revealed religion to some degree, the clerics were the ones that sort of were the impasse between people and the messenger of God appearing at at that time, and I guess Baha'u'llah was trying to address that by removing that barrier. Sure, that's why, for instance, the New Testament talks so much about the Sadducees and the Pharisees and things like that. They, you know, they pretty much played the same function within the Jewish community mm-hmm. as the ulama tend to play mm-hmm. in in Islam. Mm-hmm. And any time that you, you know, there's just simply one truth about religion. Let's face it; it's true about all religions. No religion wants to be superseded. Mm-hmm. And if you have a professional investment in a religion taking a certain form, that that's what you're making your living off of, mm-hmm. anyone who comes along and uh, tries to change any of that is going to be a threat. Yeah. I don't know that clerics are any more naturally perverse than anybody else, but mm. in some sense they have people's souls in their hands. Yeah. Now, that only happens because we give them that kind of power. In other words, we don't exercise our own ability to search for the truth for ourselves, and and we rely on these people that we imagine to be experts. Yeah. Now, what do you think uh, accounted for the fact that Islam moved toward a uh, republic or democratically elected legislature from the past? Ah... Well, there was a long debate about it, Hmm. and in many cases, it was justified on the principles of things like consultation. Of course, consultation is extremely important to Baha'is as well. Uh, A lot of Baha'is don't realize that that that's to be found in Islam, too. I think Abdu'l-Baha perhaps 
worked out ideas of consultation a little bit more and talked about how consultation should should take place. Mm-hmm. But it really, the, the first justification for it were Quranic verses, and of course the first justifications aren't written until the 19th century when people are looking at the West and saying, what can we borrow from them and what can't we? Mm-hmm. And... Uh, the notion that rulers ought to consult with the people is a large part of that. You know, uh, Abdu'l-Bahá, Baha'u'llah's son, uh, participated in these discussions. With his Muslim uh, friends? He, well, he wrote a book called The Secret of Divine Civilization, which you may be mm. uh, familiar with, which is written in, in a whole genre of, of literature that was being produced at the time of how do we deal with the West? Mm. And, uh, of course, what Abdu'l-Bahá was arguing is that uh, we shouldn't be resisting modernization simply because it's not necessarily coming out of our religion or out of our culture and things like that. And he would quote a famous hadith of Muhammad seeking knowledge even under China and uh, things like that. And so he was willing to acknowledge uh, the contributions of the West. At the same time, he even he recognized how much of them actually uh, were the result of Islamic influence. Mm. That the introduction of, of knowledge from the Islamic West is really what allowed universities eventually just to uh, develop in the... Uh, in Europe, scholasticism was developed first in the Islamic world and then was carried on, as was were universities. Uh, and then later on they developed in, in Europe, and uh, much of our knowledge of Greek philosophy, nearly all of it, in fact, mm-hmm. came from the Islamic world as well. So, um, you know, Abdu'l-Bahá could also see the debt to it. Mm-hmm. But uh he was saying, you know, it's like the Islamic world had at some point in its history become frozen in time, and it was, it, it was, we needed to move on, <laughs> right. I guess. Now, you mentioned something about the Baha'i principle and consultation. Can you explain a little bit of what that means? Well, when Baha'is try to arrive at decisions, um, we use what's known as the consultative process. In other words, um, everyone needs to be in a position where they're free to express their opinion, but then it doesn't belong to them anymore. It belongs to the group. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we need to have a certain amount of attachment. At the same time, we can't get hurt by people who have opposing opinions. We all need to contribute our own perspective and, and really sort of let the spirit work through us. Mm-hmm. And uh, if we can do that with enough detachment, then um, then decisions that come out of that can be inspired, mm. if you will. They they become more than simply the sum of our parts. Mm-hmm. I guess you would say. Mm-hmm. Well, Susan, thank you very much. And my phone has lasted, hasn't it? Yeah, not? that's awesome. <laughs> Divine intervention. <laughs> Okay. All right, great. Okay. Okay. I will see you online then, huh? Yeah, I'll see you on our next post. Okay, great. Bye. Bye bye. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Susan Monick. 
a Baha'i and Associate Professor of History at Jackson State University in Mississippi. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
unity is only as big as our vision And it must now strive to expand beyond the horizon But truly this must guide us through the ills of society that stand in our way So if the road is to harmony, be with the call But if it's about discord, don't take the ride at all Cause the world vision I see is the one we for everybody
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station.